Amen. Good morning. Remember years ago, we had some kind of a technical difficulty, and the person who was back there working it came up to me afterwards. She's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I said, you know, honestly, it just reminds me of all the times you get it, like, perfect. And so I want to thank these guys for all of the ways that they get it perfect. It's awesome. All right, so um, I'm a little excited today. Uh, I have had two cups of tea, so that's more than I usually do. Uh, But this is the first Sunday since, what, like seven months now that we are doing a 9 o'clock service and an 11 o'clock service, and we are doing it both online and in person. And so that is amazing, but I want to bring a challenge to you because the next thing we need to bring back is our in-person children's ministries. Our children's ministries team has been doing a phenomenal job throughout the course of this uh, quarantine in creating materials and putting them online. And I know you guys are out there and I hope that you're using them right now. They're really great. We're going to continue to do that and even perfect them. So give us your ideas. We're open to those things. We're constantly in communication with other churches to see how we can do those things even better than we're doing. Uh, But... In person, we can do it as well. And so we have set November 22nd as the date where we're going to restart our in-person children's ministries in accordance with all the protocols and so forth. We have a fully functioning school uh, that God has protected thus far from this virus, as he has most of the other schools. So we're really grateful for that, and it can be done. That's my point. It can be done, and it can be done well. And so I want to talk to you. If you have kids in children's ministries, it is not a prerequisite that you also work in children's ministries. But we'd love it if you would volunteer and work in children's ministries. And in addition to that, if you're somebody like me, so my oldest is going to be 26 this week. My youngest, 12 days later, will be 18. Our kids have not been in children's ministries for years and years and years. And yet my wife worked in children's ministries for like 15 years, long after our kids got out. And then she only gave that up and she still misses it. And she became our prayer ministry coordinator, and she has duties now on Sunday morning, and so she can't do it. All our kids have volunteered in children's ministries. You are in a position where you don't have to get 14 kids, and that's what it feels like, even if it's two, ready for church and all the stuff and get them there, and, you know, and then you come in and your hair is on fire, and oh, now you've got to volunteer. You can be a blessing to those parents because you remember what it was like. So if you can do that, we would love it if you would email riokids at riavistachurch.com. It's riokids at riavistachurch.com. I want to tell you, if you want to change the world, pour into kids. Everybody's understood that for thousands and thousands of years, and it makes a difference. Like two weeks ago, we got the greatest email from Ashley Bauer. The Bowers are one of our uh, families here in this church, and she wrote to uh, Beth Marks in our children's ministries, and she just shared. How, she thanked them for all the materials that we've been producing and putting out online. And she said, look, I just want to tell you that my daughter, Mackenzie, has come to faith in Jesus. And we were like, yes, that's it. Yeah, you can clap. It's okay. It's good. It's all good. It's amazing. Okay, same week, we get a video from Abigail Pendrack. Pendrack's also a great family. And it's a video of Abigail asking Hadassah, one of their daughters, questions from the New City Catechism, which is one of the things we do with our fourth and fifth graders. We take them through the New City Catechism, and she's asking the question, and Hadassah is just nailing it, you know, just nailing it. And I'm watching this on my computer, and I I wanted to, like, in a hazmat suit, of course, go through my computer and into the living room, and Hadassah, I know you're watching, and just give her a hug and just say, honey, I'm so proud of you. That's amazing. Okay, that's what you have the privilege of being a part of. So I'm just putting it out there and saying we need your help. We need your help to produce the stuff online. We need your help to be able to produce it and and, and to be able to work with these kids. 
uh, in person as well. And so, um, so take the challenge, if you would. Really would appreciate that. All right, as we continue our worship now, we, we transition back into this study that we've been doing. This is the seventh week of the study. We're calling it Jesus is Greater. We're looking at the greatness of Jesus that surpasses the greatness, well, of everything and everyone else. And we're looking at his greatness through all of these characters in the Old Testament that, as we've seen, I think undeniably have lives that are constructed in such a way as to point to Jesus. And you're like, how can these people who lived hundreds, if not thousands of years before Jesus, have lives that are constructed in such a way as to point to Jesus? Because Jesus is God. And this book is a supernatural book. And it's really about one person. It's about his greatness. And we come today to the story of Elijah. And what's kind of unique about Elijah, as opposed to all of the other people that I've named, is that when Jesus was here on earth and he was walking around doing ministry with his disciples, he came to this place called Caesarea Philippi, a place that we go every time we go to the Holy Land. A little commercial break for that. And he asks a really significant question. He says to these guys, effectively, he's like, all right, so this group of people follows us around pretty much all the time. Everywhere we go, they go. So pretty much everything I'm saying, pretty much everything I'm doing, these guys see and they, they hear, like they've become students of my life, but, but they were also raised to be students of all of these characters in the Old Testament. And here's what I, Jesus, am wondering. You guys talk to them a lot. Do they see any correspondences? Like, do they see any similarities? Are they saying, hey, you know, the life of Jesus that we're watching play out before us looks a lot like the life of fill-in-the-blank. And in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, Elijah makes the top three every time. And when you look at the life of Elijah and you look at the life of Jesus and you begin to compare them, you go, wow, that's, that's pretty remarkable. Like I, I get why he's on the list. I mean, just for starters, Elijah was a great prophet. Jesus was a great prophet. Don't worry, I have more. Okay, that's not enough. I understand. But what is the story of Elijah? Well, in part, the story of Elijah is that God comes to Elijah and says, I want you to go to the evil king Ahab. I want you to go to his more evil wife, Jezebel, and I want you to tell them that you're going to pray, and then it's not going to rain. And it's not going to rain until you pray again. And the reason that I'm doing this is because these guys have led the whole of the northern kingdom of the people of God that was called Israel. They've led the whole of them away from me. They've killed my prophets. They've destroyed my altars. And they've led them into the worship of Baal, among other things, Baal and Asherah. But what's notable is that Baal is the god of the sky. He's the god who sends the rain and the lightning and the thunder and the whole deal. He's like, yeah, so we're just going to shut it off. Let them cry out to Baal. He has 450 prophets. Asherah has 400 prophets. You're going to roll in. You're going to say, in judgment on you, king as an indictment on you and all these prophets of yours, the true God, the one who actually exists, is going to answer my prayer. I'm going to pray that it's not going to rain, and uh, it's not going to rain. And then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to pray that it rains, and then a great storm is going to rise up off the Mediterranean, and it's going to come up over the land, and it's not going to drizzle. It's going to be a deluge. What is Elijah doing? Because that's what happens. It's how it plays out. Well, Elijah is praying. Elijah is listening to God and doing what he wants him to do. Oh, you want me to do that? I'll do that. You want me to pray that? I'll pray that. And what is God doing? God is controlling the weather. But it looks like, I mean, if you're just looking at the life of Elijah, that Elijah is, in some sense, controlling the weather. God's doing it, but you get the idea. You fast forward to the New Testament, to the life that all these people that are following Jesus around have been watching. 
What does he do? Well, among other things, he gets up in a boat in the midst of a storm. Let's come over the Sea of Galilee. It's in a ravine. When the air rushes in, it's intense. They all think they're going to die. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. I'm going to pray to the Father, and he's going to still the storm. That's not what he does. He's greater than Elijah. He speaks to the wind and the waves, and they stop. Like they don't just sort of die down. and They just, like a light switch, you know, the lights are on, the lights are off. Okay, the storm is on, and we think we're going to die. The storm is off, and now we can water ski. Like it's that kind of a deal. He's greater. It's remarkable. During the three and a half years of drought that are caused by the not raining for three and a half years, Elijah finds shelter and sustenance in part in the house of this woman who lives in the city of Sidon, which is outside of Israel. He leaves because he knows everybody's looking for him because they all need to get him to pray to turn the water back on because, you know, the God of the sky, Baal, is not coming through for them. So he leaves Israel, he goes to Sidon, and he begins to live with this woman who is a widow and her son. And how does God provide for them? By miraculously multiplying the tiny little bit of food that she has in her jar when he shows up. They're like going to make their last sandwich, and then they're going to die. He's like, listen, make me the sandwich. So imagine that. And I'm going to pray, and then God is going to miraculously multiply your food, and he's going to sustain us throughout the whole of the famine. It's all good. It's exactly what happens. And so then you fast forward to the New Testament. You find Jesus. He's out in this place of deprivation. 5,000 men, probably 20,000 people. How much food do they have? Five loaves, two fish. I can't feed that. I can't even feed all the disciples for crying out loud. That's a big lunch for one guy. You know, like, that's it. What does Jesus do? He prays. and No, no, no. He just says, bring me the stuff. I'll multiply it myself. Why? Because he's greater than Elijah. He's God. Elijah lives in an upper room in the house of the Sidonian woman. Mark 14, Jesus has provided an upper room. You feeling it? Elijah heals the son of this Sidonian woman. Jesus, in Mark 7, heals the child of a Sidonian woman. It just keeps going. Elijah spends 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness, sustained by the food that was prepared for him by an angel sent from God. Okay, Jesus spends 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness, sustained by the Spirit of God alone, at the end of which he is sustained by food that is prepared for him by an angel sent from God. Elijah calls Elisha to become his disciples. He finds him driving 12 yoke of oxen in a field, and he just walks up and says, follow me. And Elisha's like, whoop, you know, throw the reins. I'm out. I'm going. I leave the farm. I leave the family. leave the animals in the field. How does Jesus call his disciples? He just walks up to Matthew at the tax collector booth and says, Matthew, son of Alphaeus, follow me. Just leaves his money on the counter. Walks away. Peter, Andrew, James, John, leave your nets. Y'all are fishermen? We're going to change that. You're going to fish for something else. Follow me. They leave it all behind. It's remarkable. Elijah cheats death, if you know the story. He goes to heaven without physically dying. Jesus, who is infinitely greater, endures the death that we deserved in our place. And then he defeats death itself. He doesn't cheat it. He stomps on its head, and he does that through resurrection. So, you know, when Jesus asks this question, it's it's pretty evident as to why these people who are students of both lives would be going, man, I I mean, I see correspondences in the other lives too, but 
Elijah jumps off the page at us, and the part of Elijah's life that I want to look at today is his lowest moment. It's the lowest point of his life. I think we can relate to that. And his lowest moment follows his highest moment. So the three and a half years pass. God comes to Elijah and says, time to go back to Israel. I want you to go to Ahab. I want you to tell him that you're going to pray and it's going to rain and you're going to do it from Mount Carmel and he needs to be there and so does everyone else. And so he shows up and he says to Ahab, hey, here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to pray and it's going to rain, but it's not going to happen unless you bring every person in Israel to Mount Carmel and you, wicked king, need to come yourself and bring all your 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Like, I want all those guys there. We're going to take roll when I show up. And then after that, something cool is going to happen. We're going to have a little contest. And so everybody shows up. And Elijah just takes over. Because, you know, I mean, if he doesn't pray and it's not going to rain, so they're all listening to him. And he says, so here's what we're going to do here. And I'm speaking now to all the people of Israel. We're going to have a little contest, and we're going to decide who God is, and we're going to settle this today. So the prophets of Baal, all 450 of them, are going to build an altar. They're going to put wood on the altar. They're going to put a bull on the altar. But they're not going to set the wood on fire. They're going to cry out to the God of the sky who doesn't exist and ask him to consume it, to to receive it with fire from heaven. And then when that fails... I'm going to do the same thing, but with a very different result. So they do. They build their altar, and they put the wood on the altar, and they put the bull on the altar, and they begin, you know, I mean, this is pressure. You know, God, it hasn't rained in three and a half years. (laughs) It's not like they're all of a sudden starting to cry out, but all of a sudden, like, everyone is there, and this is the ultimate showdown. Like, if they've ever cried out to Baal, this is the moment. And, you know, like a couple hours go by and Elijah just starts making fun of him. He's like, I don't know. Maybe the battery in his hearing aid died. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he's in the bathroom with his phone and he's just lost in Twitter land. Like, I don't know. Maybe he's on vacation. Where did he go? Has he grown old? Is he just like, shout louder. And they listen to him. <laughs> like they start... You think that might work? You know, <laughs> They shout louder. What else can you do? They're like starting to cut themselves. They mutilate their bodies. It's actually nothing funny about it. It's awful. It's what happens when you give your life to a God who is no God. Like at some point, Elijah goes, all right, can we just call this? Like, can we agree this is not going to happen? They're all like, oh, yes, I just got to go sit down. Like, you know... All the people are like, yeah, no, it's not going to happen. He's like, okay, my turn. Just me, 450 to one. No God, only God. Builds his altar, puts the wood, puts the bowl. Then he digs a trench around it because he's showing off at this point, I guess. I don't know, but it's awesome. And he says to the people, now, you know, you guys, come up close. I want you to inspect this. Okay, now bring water. And they just start dousing it with water, all right, until the water flows over all of this and down and then fills up the trench, the little moat that he's created all the way around this. And then he kneels and he prays this simple prayer, Oh, God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, the true and the living God, the only God, show yourself to this people. Reveal that, in fact, you are alone, God, and that I am not crazy, but I'm your prophet 
and the Lord sends fire from heaven. He consumes the bull, the wood, the next one's my personal favorite, the stones. Like that's the part you'd think would be left. And the water, including the water in the middle. Like I'm picturing just a smoldering hole at this point. And all the people, twice in unison, say, the Lord, he is God. (laughs) The Lord, he is God. Just Lord wanted you to hear it, so we said it twice. (laughs) And Elijah said, yeah, he is. All these people who have been leading you into death, all of these people who have been leading you from life, all of these people who have led you into three and a half years of famine, which is devastating. I want you to destroy every one of them. Ahab the king, you might want to run home, bud. All y'all might want to get out of here because it's going to rain. I'm going to pray. It's going to rain. He prays. Here comes the cloud, and it's a deluge on its way. So he runs to the capital city, and what is he thinking at this point? He's thinking, this is the moment I've been waiting for all my life. Like, this is the moment where finally everything changes. This, the whole people of God have just said, the Lord, he is God, twice. Like, everybody's been reconverted or brought back or converted for the first time, whatever. Mass revival has just broken out in the nation. And all these evil, awful prophets who have been leading them into death are gone. And King Ahab, who is terrible, and his wife, who's even worse, have been completely disenfranchised. I mean, these guys have been utterly humiliated. It's obvious, is it not, that they are the ones who've led everyone into death and destruction. Obviously, they're going to be out and somebody decent is going to be in. And he gets there thinking everything's going to be different. It's not. It's not different. It says in 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 1, it says that once Ahab got back to the capital city, he told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets, all her buddies, with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. (laughs) Nothing's changed. So what does Elijah do? Does he go back to God and say, listen, we need fire one more time. I need it on the palace this time. (laughs) We've got to take these people out. We can't can't continue like this. This is is No, he just breaks. It says that Elijah was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life. He goes south into Judah to Beersheba, and he left his servant there. But, but then he continued, and he, he himself went a day's journey further out into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree, and he asked God that he, Elijah, might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. For I am no better than my father's. Look, I've read all the stories too. I know all of the... And they were not able to get these people to turn, to repent. They weren't able to make the difference that they wanted either. And I I failed too. He's like, look, God, I mean, if the whole, hey, I'm going to pray and it's not going to rain until I pray again thing, which happened 
didn't do it. If the whole, we're going to both build an altar and they're going to cry out to the God who doesn't exist and nothing's going to happen, but then fire is going to fall from heaven on mine. If, if like that happens and that didn't do it, if the disenfranchisement of the king and of his wife and the destruction of all of the evil prophets, if the, if the uniform revival or so it looked at the moment at least of God's people as they confess that he is God, not once but twice, like if these things did not do the job, what the heck will? I'm your prophet for crying out loud. And for the record, I've done everything you've told me to do, and I've said everything you've told me to say. And by the way, God, in your defense, you've done everything you said you would do. Like we've both executed perfectly. No difference. So I see no point for me here. I'm out. Like, take my life. Take me to heaven. (laughs) Just get me out of this place. It's over. And I want to ask you, what is, because I want to identify this, what specifically has brought Elijah to this moment? To this place where he's under the tree and he's like, I'm done. It's over. Because God is going to come to him in a minute and we'll see this and he's going to say, Elijah, he's going to say, what are you doing here, Elijah? And the name Elijah means Yahweh is my God. So what is he going to ask him? He's going to say, what are you doing here if I'm your God? What brings him to this place? And I think the answer to that is unmet expectations. So a counselor friend shared something with me that has proven itself out to be absolutely and entirely true over the years. He says that unmet expectations lead to anger, which they do, and anger leads to depression, which it does. And as I take that statement this week and I just, you know, looked in the mirror and I looked around and I talked to different people, I thought, that's about right. You know, that seems to be a lot where most of us, well, frankly, are at. Can we disagree with that? All right, so here's the deal. 2020, for all of us, has been like looking both ways before you cross the street and then getting hit by an airplane. Can we agree with that? That's it. Yeah, airplane. Yeah. That's what it's felt like. Like, nobody saw the pandemic coming. I know there are probably five people on earth who saw it coming, four of which predict something crazy every year. One is a genius, and we should have listened. But we didn't. Not on the radar, totally, like it's an airplane. Political division, we all saw that coming, but did we see it to this degree? It's an airplane. Racial unrest, we've always had it, but the eruption of it, airplane. More than that, I think that this year comes to us and it has solidified an ethic that I think is massively unhealthy. It comes to me and it comes to you now and it solidly says, look, unless you want to experience social consequences, economic consequences, and I think not too far down the road, legal consequences, then you are going to have to take that which you believe in your heart of hearts to be evil and say instead that it's good or say nothing at all. Or you're going to have to take that which in your heart of hearts you believe to be good and say instead that it's evil or say nothing at all. Okay, you know what? Now I want to be hit by an airplane. Like I'll get out on the runway going, hey, 50 yards this way, you know, as he's coming in. Like, where's the broom tree? Because I'm going to go sit with Elijah. And if he won't let me like sit in the shady part, you know, as my son would say, we're going to throw hands, right? Like... You're like, Mr. Angry Guy, what in the world? Where is this coming from? 
Okay, I'm not that angry. But where is it coming from? Because it's not just Elijah. It's not just me. Unmet expectations lead to anger. Anger leads to depression. It puts us under the broom tree. And what that does is it brings us back to God's question, which is, what what are you doing here, Elijah? Like, what are you doing here if I am your God? And what I want you to see is what God does next. Because what he does next sort of answers that question. It, It leads you to a place where you go, oh, yeah, what am I doing here? That's the idea. And so God comes to Elijah, first of all, and he causes him to sleep a deep sleep, and he sends him this angel. It's a messenger. That's what the word angel means, who prepares him food. Okay, you're like, well, so what's going on there? You're like, well, Tom, you know, we are physical and we are emotional and we are spiritual beings and all of these things are connected and God is realizing this guy's just worn out and he needs food and he needs rest and he needs all of these things that all of us need. And yeah, okay, all right. I mean, we do all need those things and we need to attend to these different aspects of our being, particularly in massively stressful seasons of life. I know that by experience, but that's not what he's doing. He's coming to Elijah and he's going, hey... Um, let me remind you of who I am. Do you remember, you know, before your great disappointment, how I sustained you in the home of that Sidonian woman? I miraculously provided you with food. You see how I just, I just did that? I just, I, I just did that? <laughs> I gave you rest. You see how that just worked out for you? Look, on both sides of your disappointment, I am the same God. I have not changed. And I am faithful. And so I guess at that point, you kind of expect that Elijah's going to eat his meal and he's going to get up and go, you're right, what am I thinking? Like, What's the matter with me? Thank you, Lord. And the food was good, by the way. Now, you know, we give it a four out of five stars. Like, time to go back to work. That's not what he does. And the strength of that food, he just keeps running. He goes further south. Way down into the Sinai Peninsula to Mount Sinai, it says in verse 9, and and he did that, and where he came to a cave, and what is a cave? It is a dark place. You're there by yourself in the midst of the desert. It's a lonely place. It's a hard place. It doesn't come with furniture. You don't sleep on a bed in a cave. He's like, yeah, no, that's pretty much where I'm at. He came to a cave and he lodged in it, just moved in. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And God said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing if I'm your God? Like, why are you here? And Elijah said, all right, so I'm going to answer the question. But you're going to like it. But I'm not happy about it either, so here's the deal. Let me just run through it for you, Lord. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. True statement. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, also true. Thrown down your altars, also true. And killed your prophets with the sword, also true. They've been awful. And I, even I only, am left. Now, that's not true, but you can see how from his perspective he would feel like it's true. He's the only guy having these encounters. He's the only person doing this. He's like, I'm operating alone here, and here's my reward. They seek my life to take it away, also true. And God said, all right, here's what I want you to do. Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. 
And here's what he witnessed. It says, And the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, reminding Elijah that God is the God of the heavens still. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, reminding Elijah that God is the God of the earth still. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and then after the earthquake, a fire reminding him that he's still the God that sends fire from heaven, like he's lost none of his power, he's lost none of his potency. Nothing's happened to him, like he is not diminished in the least, and yet the Lord was not in the fire. And then after the fire, the sound of a low, or really like of a gentle whisper, a faint whisper, what does that cause you to do? Like if I was up here and I was trying to whisper something to you, mask or no mask, what would you have to do to hear it? You'd have to come up close. What is he doing? He's, he's drawing Elijah in. He's like, come here, buddy. Come on, come on. Come on in here. I'm going to talk quietly so that you have to come in here. I'm going to give you a hug, and I'm going to whisper in your ear. It says, after the fire, the sound of a low or a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, He wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here if I'm your God? And again, he pled his case. He says, Well, I I thought you got it the first time, so let me... I'll explain it again. I've been very jealous for the Lord. Check the God of hosts. Check the people of Israel forsaken your covenant. Check they've thrown down your altar. Check killed your prophets with a sword. Check and and I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Check. And I pretty reasonably expected it to go very differently. And I'm kind of ticked. I'm just giving up. So what does the Lord do? Does he say, all right, stay in your cave. You like it here? Have at it. When you figure it out, give me a call. No. He keeps pursuing him. He says to him, it says, the Lord said, go and return. And return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, to Syria, to the enemy of Israel. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Elijah's trying to process this. He's like, so wait a minute, you've got a plan for the enemies of Israel, like the mortal enemies of Israel. <laughs> yeah, like, and, you're, and I'm anointing the king, and the, exactly. And he continues, and he says, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And he's like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. So that means Ahab's out, and Jezebel's going to be out, and, like, and then we're going to get a new king. Yeah, it's exactly what it means. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. And now let me tell you why all is not lost. He says, and the one, the judgment you're looking for, it's here. The one in Israel who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. And yet, you're not alone. For I will leave 7,000 in Israel and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So what has God just done? He's reminded Elijah of who he is and of what he's like, and of the reality that even when he can't see it and it violates all of his expectations, everything is always going exactly according to God's plan. And we can trust him in that. 
And then he put this in the Bible so that I can learn that and so could you. It's remarkable. Guys, in the person of Jesus Christ, God didn't send you an angel. He sent you himself. And he didn't bring you a sandwich. He brought you the bread of his body and the wine of his blood, that which saves for all of eternity. It's remarkable. Paul speaks of him as the spiritual rock in which we can find shelter from what? From the judgment of God, from his fiery judgment that we deserve, but that he took in our place. Why? So that he might come to us and go, hey, bring it in, bring it in. Let me give you a hug. I don't need a hazmat suit. I don't have the virus. Come here for a minute. Let me whisper in your ear. Here's my message for you. I'm still God. I have not changed. Oh, let me tell you who I am. I am faithful. I am ever-present and always powerful. I'm the God of the heavens and of the earth. I am the one who has lost none of his potency. And here's what you need to know. You need to know that I have a plan. That even though things might be violating your expectations, nothing ever violates my expectations. And in fact, they just further my purposes in your life and in the world, even if you don't like the way it's going. And what you need to do is trust me in it. I love this story. Unmet expectations lead to anger. Here's what I want you to do. Check your anger meter. How's it reading? You know, you got to flip open the dial, you know, like the water meter in the ground. Probably have to rub some of the dirt off, get a flashlight. What's it look like? What about your depression meter? You know, I mean, are you living in a cave, figuratively speaking? I think the question for all of us, God's coming to us, and he's saying, hey, what are you doing here? if I am your God. So work that through. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are alone, God, and you have not hidden yourself from us. Lord, you have given us your word. You have given us your spirit, both of whom teach us and talk to us and speak to us and convict us of the reality of who you are and of what you're like. May we not ignore either. It's a time not to run from you. It's a time to press in. You are the God who comes to us in Jesus and at the expense of his life buys us out of our darkness, out of our loneliness, out of our sin and out of death itself. Lord, let us sacrifice our wants and desires. Let us repent of all of the ways that we resent the life that you have given us. And let us declare it good. For you are good. Let us look beyond the days of this time and beyond the days of this life. We're here for a moment. We're with you for all of eternity, and you are working all things out for your good and perfect purposes, not just now, but for all of them. Lord, let us know that if we have you, we have everything. Without you, we have nothing, no matter what else we have. But through faith in Jesus, we have you. You are ours. Now may we be yours. And in that find peace and in that find joy and in that find purpose and in that find power and in that find perspective and in that find the ability to trust even when it looks like nothing is making sense. Lord, 
Give us the hug. (laughs) We need it. Whisper your messages in our ear and open them to hear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.